Perceptions Podcast. The same socials that celebrate you can shred you, pushing you between delight and despair. No wonder it feels like a roller coaster of emotions. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? We are beyond effed. Now you can fill in the blank, but that was the sign posted up around a Melbourne University campus by Extinction Rebellion recently. However bad it may seem to you, well, whatever it is, we're beyond it. It's jarring, isn't it? A university campus in what is regarded as one of the world's most livable cities, great food, great shops, great entertainment, great vibe, great opportunities, and students who are studying hard to ensure great futures for themselves. Yet what's the point? Apparently, we're beyond effed. Well, I hope you can excuse the French, but it cuts through, doesn't it? And it gets to the intensity of the issues facing us in our day. And the discombobulation of every young person who walks past that sign, trying to figure out their future, but constantly being told that they don't have one. That's because of what? The climate crisis, or because of war, or wars, or because they will be priced out of the housing market, or because having children is just too complex and expensive? You can fill in the blanks. In fact, the predictive word program I used to write these podcast notes actually did fill in the blanks for me, because I wrote down, because having children is just too, and word dutifully obliged with the word expensive. In my day, for children, it was too tiring or too difficult, but now it's just beyond what you can afford. And why would you want to bring them into this awful world anyway, with all those posters around? Now let's add to that problem by acknowledging that not having children is going to become more expensive as well because the tax base in our country will shrink and there'll be no one to fill in the coffers and no one to visit us when we get old. I suspect by the stage that the average Gen Z is in an aged care facility, it will no longer be foreign workers from the subcontinent or sub-Saharan Africa looking after them, but some form of AI with appropriate duty of care and a suitable bedside manner dialed in. And by appropriate and suitable, I simply mean that such niceties will be means tested. If you can afford them, that's what you'll get. Is it any wonder that we're seeing an unprecedented level of anxiety in Gen Z at the moment? So where's it all going? Well, the stats seem to say it's going south and in an unprecedented way. How about these figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics as reported in the Australian newspaper? 
Just under 40% of 16 to 24 year old Australians, that's 1.1 million people, reported having a mental health disorder in 2020-21. Now that's far higher than the overall proportion of 21.4% for all Australian adults. And you know what? The figures climb for young females to over 40%, well over it. The Australian goes on to report more than four in 10 16 to 24 year old females in Australia reported an anxiety condition such as social phobia or panic disorder in that period. And that's around twice the rate as males of the same age. Here's the newspaper again, quoting Australia's Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Mental Health, Ruth Vine. Now she says, there's been an increasing level of distress and anxiety in this cohort that predated COVID, but it's been likely exacerbated by COVID with issues such as disrupted schooling and social media, she says, is another consideration. It can be good in terms of connection, but can also be a harm if it's leading to harassing behaviours. And then she adds, and of course, young people are worried about global concerns as well. So there you have it, COVID, social media, global concerns, and that's a heady cocktail indeed. Ah, social media. We all knew the effects of COVID lockdowns and uh, tacitly we're all saying, let's never go there again. And global concerns, that's our unforgettable poster at the Melbourne University. But let's delve into the social media side of things a bit because we aren't going to be winding that back anytime soon. In fact, it's becoming more ubiquitous. Indeed, young people get most of their information about COVID and world concerns from social media. And, and this isn't just about Australia. New York University academic psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Haidt has done the hard research qualitatively and quantitatively. And here are his conclusions at the start of 2023. He says this, we are now 11 years into the largest epidemic of adolescent mental illness ever recorded. It is hitting all political and all demographic groups. The evidence is abundant that social media is a major cause of the epidemic and perhaps the major cause. Now, Hyde is no henny penny shrieking that the sky is falling. He's a serious academic with serious credentials and he traces the rise of deep anxiety among the younger generation to the non-stop, constantly flowing tap of social media. 11 years ago, something changed. It was the full-blown advent of the smartphone in the hands of just about everyone, including young teens. Now, this isn't just an updated version of how television has rotted your brain. Social media, hyper-immersive and hyper-interactive as it is, has changed the way we receive information beyond the scale of other media formats, and it's 24-7. A younger generation is living in a world in which they've been told to be ourselves, to carve out their own identities. Yet they live those selves and those identities before a constantly watching world. Now, perhaps a virus can be dampened down and perhaps the climate damage can be dialed down, but the social media age is not only here to stay, it is here to embed itself deeper into our lives. The same socials that celebrate you can shred you, pushing you between delight and despair. No wonder it feels like a roller coaster of emotions. And at the same time as this rise of technology heightens our anxieties 
and foregrounds the background anxieties that are plaguing our lives, there's a corresponding loss of confidence in the institutions that were once the places to locate our security. Think of those institutions, places like churches, family, government, education systems. It's as if there is no locus of security, no stable ground. And that's ironic. The late sociologist Robert Bella, who coined the term expressive individualism, pointed out that the corresponding loss of social frameworks, even as the rise of the individual gathered pace, has led to a state where we have no fabric to hold individuals together, even at the same time that there's a greater validation of the sacredness of the individual. It's as if we're up there, but there's nothing holding us. Did you get that? Humans, ironically for this secular age, are more sacred than ever in our minds, of course. Not collectively, but in our own eyes. Yet there's a gossamer thin framework holding that all up. Now, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is a cracking read. But the caveat to the title is this. There's no real triumph. The modern self is, as the late Tim Keller said, extremely fragile. If you and you alone have to define your identity, then it is no wonder that, as Keller went on to say, this has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. Now think about that. The two newest generations to emerge have anxiety levels that are indeed unprecedented and require lots of affirmation just to keep them at level. Even at this time when everyone gets a trophy, even when that idea was in full swing, people just don't feel affirmed enough. Which begs the question, how much affirmation is enough? Probably just a little bit more, as it turns out. Now therein lies the concern. The triumph of Truman's book title is being masked by a creaking mental health industry in which, all across the Western world, there is a dearth of clinicians. We are beyond a lot of things, and one of them appears to be that we are beyond resolving the mental health crisis anytime soon. And let me segue this for a moment. The rise of expressive individualism has seen an astonishing rise in the number of young people seeking access to gender-affirming therapies and medications as a solution to some of their mental health issues. Think about it. If true happiness, we are told, is found in being who we truly know we are on the inside, then perhaps, for many young people, aligning our external physicality with our inner psychology will resolve our anxieties. Yet even this is a vexed solution. While the surge in young people seeking access to gender-affirming psychology and gender-altering drugs has soared, new research indicates that this is not solving the mental health issues of such young people. In fact, in the UK, the statistics show that many young people on such drugs exhibited higher levels of anxiety than before. The UK analysis shows that 34% of children aged 12 to 15 reported that their mental health had gotten worse after taking puberty blockers for one year. Now, 29% of children saw their psychological health improve, but another 37% said there was no change. So that means 71% had either a zero improvement or a decline. 
Yet this has been urged upon governments in the West as a panacea to a major mental health matter among young people. Now here in Australia, we're still playing catch up on this issue and we're lagging well behind the UK and Scandinavian countries in restricting the use of these puberty blocker drugs, even when the hard data is showing it does not improve mental health. And in an echo of Tim Keller's comments, affirmation, external affirmation, isn't really scratching the surface of what's going on in our wider cultural moment. Look, of course, I understand that there are deep complexities to the gender debate, but the sharp rise in young women especially identifying as trans, as documented by the likes of Abigail Schreier in her book Irreversible Damage, at least raises questions about the lack of a quick fix for a social media saturated and deeply anxious young generation. Though, as the stats make clear, this is not simply a young person's issue. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics Head of Health and Disability Stats, Linda Fardell, anxiety is the most common group of mental disorders Australia-wide. 16.8% of all Australians had an anxiety disorder, 7.5% had an affective disorder such as depression, while 3.3% had a substance use disorder. Whatever is happening to us, it won't be turning around anytime soon. What can we do about this? Well, as I was preparing this podcast, I was watching and reading news reports of the Hamas-led invasion of Israel. And I'm reading of 250 music festival attendees being gunned down as they listened to bands, killed by terrorists, even as they let their hair down and enjoyed the pleasure and release that music so often brings to people. It seems that there's no escape. It seems that it's a fairly twee and indeed cruel argument to make to young people that they should just get on and enjoy life, especially when, with no warning, their lives are taken away or ruined forever when they're doing exactly that. Perhaps Extinction Rebellion is right. We are beyond effed. Perhaps the first thing we can do about this is not to try to wave it away too quickly. Perhaps it's a case of sitting and lamenting, lamenting with people and admit that the direction in which we are headed is indeed anxiety-inducing. It's not simply the messages plastered across our university campuses that are the problem. In fact, they're not the problem. They're highlighting the problems. We are a culture running out of hope. Something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. Hear that. Something has gone wrong that is seeing huge rates of anxiety, a lower birth rate, a dramatic drop in participation in community events, a polarised society in which forgiveness is fading away as a preferred option, and cancelling is now the go-to, the new black, as it were. The first step is not numbing our concerns with pleasure or denial. Neither of these should be our drug of choice. The first step is to lament that we are in this place in the first instance, to admit to it and then unpack what is going on. Now, spoiler alert, this podcast episode won't give you happy solutions at the end. I'll save that for another episode. But what it will do is highlight 
where we've gone off track on the way down the mountainside. Our lament will encapsulate two aspects of modern life that we have, like so much poisoned Kool-Aid, gulped down with gusto. Here's the first thing we must lament. We must lament our collective loss of a sense of identity outside our individual selves. The culture air we breathe has changed. Very little says in our culture, live for more than you, unless of course it's to your benefit. But if the point of me is me, then when me becomes pointless, then what's the point? That's a dangerous place to be. If I've been conditioned to pull the lever of self-identity or push the you do you button as hard as I can, and then suddenly the lever breaks off in my hand or the button won't ignite the engine, then where do I go from there? That's the very fragility Tim Keller was talking about. Unfortunately, that often means running off to the next thing and the next thing, whatever or whoever that is. The second thing to lament is this. We must lament the loss of a sense of purpose outside of ourselves. Collective purposelessness is as toxic to us as individual purposelessness. And that's the problem. Individual anxiety is on the rise, partly because collective anxiety is on the rise. It's not simply that I am beyond theft, As the poster says, we all are. Without addressing these two losses, without lamenting these two things, a vanishing collective identity as a people, we will either mill around aimlessly and increasingly be hostile and polarizing towards each other, or we will be suckers for something darker and less noble that aims to fill the collective void and give us some sort of hope. And without lamenting the loss of a sense of purpose, we will move quickly to the next solution and then the next one and the next one, this merry-go-round, wearying ourselves with whatever snake oil promises to give us the purpose that we feel we lack. So we need to lament, and we're not a culture that does that easily. So ready are we to move on to the next thing and dull the pain. Which is why we don't understand cultures that do sit in lament for extended periods of time. I still remember the Italian widows in Fremantle in the 1970s, fully dressed in black, lamenting, publicly lamenting the loss of their beloved. Were, were they any the worse the wear for such lamenting? Were we any better for not? And perhaps as a church, or those who are Christians, it's time to stop shying away from lament. It's there in bucket loads in the Bible, after all. Even on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, there's lament to be had. There's the letter of James as an example. Now, the secret is that the resurrection of Jesus does make a difference to how we lament, but it does not remove the need for it, and neither should it. If you don't see anything to lament over, then perhaps you need to be on social media for a while. Then you can start lamenting. Let me close with this thought from American theologian and philosopher Alan Noble. It's a thought I'll pick up in a future episode. In his latest book, Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living, he says this to the myriad of us who struggle to even stand on our feet in the morning. He says this, The most fundamental decision is the decision to get out of bed. And it too communicates something. The decision to get out of bed is the decision to live. It is a claim, 
that life is worth living despite the risk and uncertainty and the inevitability of suffering, one of the few things we can know for certain in this life. And what does this all mean? It means for a start that we're not beyond theft. There's a reason and meaning and purpose in life to not only get out of bed, but to study and marry and work and have babies. And how to get there? And what that all looks like? Well, that's for another episode. It will do us no harm to sit in this lament, even as we get out of bed. Podcast.